Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Gritty, and I'm pleased to be here with Nancy LeMaster, who is the committee chair for the Hospital Purchasing Managers Index that we talk about every month. Nancy, I've been looking over the report, and I'll let you explain it to the listeners and viewers. It seems to me to be going in the right direction. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Tim, for having me. Yeah, it was kind of a dramatic month. Um, let's start talking about volume. What was going on with volume this month? So as you saw, the hospital PMI dropped 7.2%. So it's still growing, but it's down to 56.9 from 64.1. So two factors hit that really hard. Business activities dropped by 20% from 74 to 54 and new orders dropped 18% all the way down into contracting at 49. So what, what is that? So you're yeah. right, in a way that is good news. And you know, at first I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not sure we've seen this dramatic a change in one month, but that wasn't true. I went back and in January of 2021, just as kind of going January uh, after that big Delta surge, we saw a similar pattern. 6.8 drop in hospital PMI, 18% drop in new orders or in, um, in um, business activity, 17% in new orders. And I think, you know, this really reminds us, Tim, of what a good leading indicator report these ISM reports are, because they're not saying the hospitals are busy. They're saying relative to the previous month, we're beginning to see Omicron let go a little bit. So, um, we really think this is the beginning. Again, a data point doesn't make a trend, but the last time we right. saw this kind of pattern was when we started to see the recovery from Delta. And then we saw kind of a, a steady build back. And if you look at the backlog of orders, they went up a percent, so 68.5. So there's demand out there for electives. And I think what this month was saying is that we were starting to turn the corner of the volume declining. So we weren't seeing the level of business activity in new orders relative to January, but you knew from the comments, they were very, very busy still. And a couple of co really concerning comments, things that we have to watch as we try and get back into this more uh, relatively speaking normal pattern and more electives was comments about having to close beds because of staffing shortages and concerns about putting off elective procedures because of blood shortages. So that wow. is, you know, we have the, um, the lowest level of national blood supply that we've had since World War II. So the blood shortage is really becoming severe. Now, you know, all of the collection agencies, Red Cross, all the others are, are working really hard to get people back. Um, and I think as we see the Omicron starting to, to diminish some, that that's going to happen. And the other silver lining in this month was that employment number. I know you saw that up 14%. So we went from about seven months of contracting to finally a month of growth, 53.5. Again, doesn't make a trend, but it's a, it's a good piece of news. And what the comments said were, that incentive programs that hospital providers are putting in place to help retain staff, to help get staff are starting to work. But the other one that was really, um, I, I guess gave me some hope was a comment about people being willing to work in hospitals again. 
And you know, you and I talked about your your housekeepers, your food service, your supply chain techs. You know, they can get jobs anywhere. And if the environment is starting to get a little bit more stable, they're starting to feel a little less risk related to the Omicron virus or COVID in general, that could bode well for our employment, our ability to recruit and hopefully retain um, employees. Well, it was interesting to me what you said about the national blood supply. Uh, that's kind of a shocking statistic. And I have heard about it nowhere at all. You know, and then that's been a really frustrating thing. And in, in within, um, you know, the healthcare world, you know, um, ARM, the Association of Healthcare Resource Materials Managers, they put out bulletins frequently, and we've been in the red for a long time. Um, and I've heard of some local cries, you know, outcries encouraging people. It has gotten very little national uh, publicity, and I'm not quite sure why, but it mm -hmm. is something that um, I know that locally places are working very hard to get people back out, um, you know, donating. Um, when I was doing the release uh, this morning of the report, uh, one of the reporters mentioned um, getting an influx of calls and emails because they hadn't donated blood for or platelets for quite some time. So I know there's outreach going on, um, and but it was the first time I actually heard the hospital say, hey, we might have to continue to uh, postpone certain types of elective procedures based on availability of blood. Wow, surprising. So let's kind of walk through what may be causing these rather drastic changes in the report, which I found amazing. Overall, I read the report and felt like, phew, it sounds like, feels like, what I'm hearing is that COVID is moving on. Um, but let's just kind of walk through each of those, Nancy, in detail, because I think it's important to our listeners to understand what those shifts are. Uh, and you can begin with uh, new orders, which people sometimes don't exactly understand in the sure. world. So when we think about the metrics as they apply to hospitals, they're a little different than manufacturing and some other services. So business activity, we think of as people in beds, what's going on in the hospital right now and in the emergency room right now, today. New orders are things that are being scheduled. So you might think of, they could be elective surgeries. And remember, the word elective is very, very misleading. There are people who have cancer that need tumors removed that are having to postpone that. Things that you and I don't think of as electives, hips and knees. But the, the definition is, you know, can it be postponed 30 days, you know, without some emergent effect on the patient? So these electives are very much procedures that need to be done. We're not talking about plastic surgery here. We're talking about, you know, cataracts being removed, joints replaced. So those, um, it might be a radiology procedure, an MRI, those are new orders, okay? People that are placing those orders in, in essence, they're scheduling, say, for next month. They're getting their order on the calendar backlog of orders, just like we think of in manufacturing, are, you know, a metric of, I've got people, I, a physician, maybe have people that I need and want to schedule for a procedure, and there's no availability, there's no slot right now. 
So I'm maybe pushing those out. That can be a little subjective, right? It might be, I can get them scheduled, but not for three months, but that would be considered a backlog, right? I can't get them in the next 30 days. So that's kind of what's going on. So what it, our, what um, the numbers really said is relative to the prior month. So remember that it's, it's a relative scale. Relative to January, we have fewer people in the house, but we also have fewer appointments being made. And that's not really as unusual as it sounds because remember, it, we've been fooled many times with COVID. We think it's gonna decline and then it bounces back. And as we've said, you can't just flip a switch and, and change out units. So there is a bit of a, a lag between seeing the COVID patients decline and, and seeing these electives fill their, their spot. So what it's telling me is we're starting to make room for those folks. And that's, that's a very good thing. Um, so that was kind of the volume piece. And we saw the employment improve. So that, that gives us, okay, hopefully we're going to have the staff to take care of them. Right. And then we got to move over to the supplies, right? Are we going to have supplies to take care of them? Um, and the supply picture this month wasn't as dramatic. You saw that, you know, things kind of shifted, but, you know, supply deliveries did get worse again. They went to uh, 71. Um, and no, I meant, excuse me, they got better. They went from 76 to 71. So they got a little bit better. Um, inventories, we're still building inventories, but not as fast. That was 56 versus 61. The sentiment is that inventories are too high, but all the comments keep talking about the back orders. In fact, I was uh, listening to a webinar with uh, some large hospital system supply chain executives and a very large system. But anyway, they indicated they were dealing with more than 8,000 back orders a month. Oh, what? Yeah, a month. Um, and so, you know, multiple hospitals, but still, you know, that tells you that the supply chain people are, are doing nothing but firefighting, trying to get products in the door. Um, so it isn't getting worse. It isn't getting significantly better. They're still building inventory, even though they know it's too high, um, trying to protect themselves in case of another surge, or in the case of bringing back electives, the mix of supplies is a little bit different. So they've got to, you know, be looking out to what they may need for that. So, you know, there's still a lot of price pressure out there. Pricing was a, up a percent, 75.5 versus 74. Pharma and supplies individually, tiny bit better, 61 versus 63, 75.5 versus 78.5. So, you know, if I take all that jumble of numbers and say, well, but what's the story? I think the story is the supply chain is stable at the moment. It's, it's not getting worse. It's not really getting better. It's certainly not where we want it. I think, you know, the story with the manufacturing, right, was still, you know, you've got the pressure of raw material shortages, labor constraints, more demand than supply. That's carrying right on over into the hospital sector. Um, and I think people are dealing with it because they've been dealing with it now for years, literally. Um, and making it happen. So the supply story doesn't cause me to be worried that we can't handle that influx of elective procedures as the COVID starts to rescind. It would tell me that these folks are gonna be able to cope because they've learned how to cope with this. 
the blood being the exception that could be a real worrisome thing, but that wasn't widespread comments. So we're gonna hope that that's more um, spots across the country, not broadly. Nancy, I'm just curious when it comes to imports and exports and inventories, are imports helping us at all? Or are you seeing, or the hospital seeing a shift towards uh, more domestic supply? So imports were up 54.5 versus 50. Um, you know, I, what I hear is that there's still not enough domestic capacity. Um, I think hospitals are buying where they can, you know, a very telling metric um, that was um, up this month was days payable outstanding. And it went from contracting to growing up about eight and a half percent. And the comment was, you know, in order to deal with these backlogs, these shortages, these substitutions, you know, they're still buying from kind of secondary suppliers, which causes a, a, a challenge in the payment cycle. A lot of times there'll be errors or, or just things have gotten done quickly and they have to be cleaned up to get bills paid. To me, that's an indicator that we're still in this mode where we're getting supplies wherever we can get them um, and we're still in a more of a reactionary mode there. So yeah, imports are still uh, you know, critical at this point. Um, again, there's a lot of talk about increasing domestic supply and you know, there have been plants, Becton Dixon, you know, some of uh, 3M, you know, that have definitely increased their production capacity in the US, but they already had manufacturing plants here. So um, you know, I think that's gonna be a long-term uh, transition, but for now, I think people are still, they're finding a way, they just find a way to get it done. I know that in every one of these instances, particularly in the healthcare industry, but also in manufacturing and non-manufacturing, when you have a significant disruption like this, because in this case of a pandemic, it's followed up by lessons learned for next time. Mm -hmm. Has that discussion already begun? It has, it has. A really interesting uh, group has formed um, and it's the, um, you know, it's kind of the Health Industry Resilience Collaborative. And it's been us, healthcare providers and some suppliers coming together voluntarily, you know, just coming together to really talk about what, what needs to change going forward. So a lot of talk, you know, no different than, you know, I think, you know, Tim has mentioned, um, but the idea of visibility and visibility to, to second tier suppliers and a better understanding of where supplies come from. You know, the healthcare supply chain has always kind of lagged a little bit. And, you know, we put a lot of trust in the manufacturers and the distributors to manage things for us. But I think that we understand today we need to do ourselves, that we need to do a better job of internal demand planning. We need to do a better job of risk mitigation planning. So you're starting to hear a lot more discussion about you know, the risk of sole sourcing should does you know, the risk benefit, how do we, how do we contract with um, manufacturers and take into account, not just the price, but the availability and how do we do a better job of, you know, there's gotta be a, a trust factor. The manufacturer's afraid that if they tell the provider, 
hey, you know, uh, our capacity to produce is down or we're having a raw material problem, then the hospitals are going to hoard, right, and make the whole problem worse. And that the hospital is saying, well, wait a minute, if you wait until you don't have any to tell me, I can't put conservation, you know, procedures in place. So I think a lot of talk about how do we do a better job, both sides being accountable for managing that supply chain, not hoarding, not waiting until a manufacturer's in crisis to tell its customers there's a problem. And how do we do a better job of this concept of conservation planning? So, you know, we know that when things get really bad, there's more than one way to do things and that we can reuse, uh, you know, sterilize and reuse masks and we can conserve PPE. But how do we have a more formal plan and sort of that almost a stoplight? Okay, it's yellow. Okay, let's start, let's start conserving now and see if we can prevent it getting to red. So I think there's a lot of, of discussion going on um, about how, what did we learn? Well, that's interesting. The automotive industry is going through a similar, similar catharsis because of chips. Right. And, and now the big chip manufacturers, including Taiwan Semiconductor, are building plants in the U.S. And the automotive industry is saying, whoa, we're not going to just say, oh, manufacturer make it for us, we're going to begin to manage chip manufacturing, just like hospitals are now saying, we're going to manage and work more closely with distributors and manufacturers and our expectations of the supply chain. I'm glad to hear that's taking place. Yeah, it really is. You know, I think that one of the things that happened during this whole pandemic is, um, the supply chain executives, the chief supply chain officers became much more visible to the CEO. And, be, you know, they talk about them being part of the C-suite now and being more engaged in helping the hospitals think strategically about how they do manage supplies. Um, and so that that idea, that sort of elevation of the, of the profession um, which maybe in manufacturing happened a long time ago. People are like, gosh, you know, if we don't have supplies, we can't make products. Well, guess what? If we don't have supplies, we can't take care of patients. So I think bringing it into a more strategic realm um, ha has been something that has come out of this. And hopefully, you know, uh, our supply chain professionals, I know they will rise to the challenge and start helping their organizations think more strategically. So we're not just reacting to these kind of things. Nancy, is there anything in the report that is alarming in a negative way, uh, as opposed to where we were a year ago? I mean, every variant clearly caused a major ripple. Going forward, is there anything alarming in this report that uh, it's to watch out for? Yeah, I think that like in, in all of the reports, the, the employment, the labor component is something we're gonna have to really, really watch. It was great to see it get better, but um, you know I think that that is going to be our constant watch. Um, I think that we're on that slow, long haul of getting better in terms of supply availability. It's just going to take us way longer than we thought, but the labor is going to be our Achilles heel. If we can't get folks, if we can't get caregivers, and if we can't get support staff, we can't take care of patients. So that's going to be what we watch. I think the thing that on the other side is an extremely bright spot 
um, was during the State of the Union address when President Biden talked about the, the um, test and treat strategy going forward, which would allow people to go into pharmacies, be tested for COVID, and if they test positive, get a prescription for the antivirals. I mean, you and I talked about long ago, I said the antivirals are gonna be our savior in this thing, because if we can keep people out of the hospital, you know, that's what's really gonna make a difference. Well, if you have a plan that allows people to be tested and quickly prescribed these drugs that can minimize the impact of COVID, the likelihood we can cut down on the number of people being seriously ill, hospitalized and, and die from this is, is very, very positive. So I think that, you know, if, if we can grow that program and we can actually get COVID to a place it's like the flu, where we can diagnose it, we can provide antivirals, and yes, you will have a, a small group of people that will always end up hospitalized from it, but it's manageable. You know, that's going to allow society as a whole and the hospitals in particular to get to a much better place. I know that you have a lot of contact with the rural hospitals and they, of course, have struggled, but managed through. How are they doing presently? You know, it, it, it's still a, a significant struggle. You know, they struggle to get labor. Um, you know, one of the, the downsides of coming out of the pandemic were there were a lot of, of states that made emergency declarations and that allowed us to, um, to waive certain requirements um, and the federal government also. And, you know, the American Hospital Association and other organizations are, are lobbying for some of these, these changes to become permanent because they expanded access to telehealth and they expanded some of the resources available for rural hospitals. They expanded uh, some of the capabilities for pharmacists and nurse practitioners. And really those are, those are expanded capacity or capabilities, excuse me, capabilities we need, we need ongoing because the, the strain on the rural hospitals is just there. It's gonna be there. It's, it's very hard to get labor. And you know, they, they struggle just um, you know, financially, although they do get some preferential reimbursement, it's not enough. So we're really hoping, um, I, I think that the programs and the bonds that were built, you know, the, the um, dynamic ventilator program where we loan ventilators to each other across the country, I see that staying. I think there may be some other programs like that that we're gonna try and develop as an industry um, through the American Hospital Association and other groups, but um, we really need to embrace the technology that's available today and use it to be able to help these people that are in areas where it's, it's very hard to physically, you know, be able to see, especially specialists, you know, and they can connect with these people, mental health professionals, all of that is really critical, I think, to being able to meet the need of, of the rural hospitals. And I think now we've demonstrated that there is acceptance and it works. So we have now taken it from a theoretical benefit to one we can show, and hopefully states and governments will will respond with positive uh, rules and regulations that help us do that. Another area that you have brought up and uh, quite interestingly so is uh, licensing and whether or not someone licensed in Missouri can cross the street and work at a hospital that happens to be in Illinois because St. Louis is a divided city by a river. Right. Has that 
been embraced where the, where the federal government and even state licensing boards are going, oh, we never, we didn't see this coming. There's one we have to wake up to. I'd say it's mixed. Um, oh. You know, you've got, you know, you always have that federal government, state government control argument. So there are those that say, you know, we need just federal national licensing instead of state licensing. That's a, that's a, a controversy. You have some states that are, are very progressive. They get it. You know, they're, they're very much changing things. And you have some states that are very protectionistic yet, and they still don't quite understand that it's, it's not in their best interest to be that way. It's going to be, it's going to be slow coming, but I do think that people are aware now of, of the need and the demand. And, you know, I see it coming. I just unfortunately don't see it coming easily or quickly across the country. I see it happening in spots. Mm, yeah, it's almost disappointing. I know that uh, my driver's license is good in every state of the union and I can get a ticket in every state of the union. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure why the uh, hospitals, I'm sorry, the state governments aren't taking another look at this. And, and I'm sure that there's not that great a disparity in what the licensing requirements are in uh, New Jersey versus uh, Nevada. Uh, I hope that they come to the point where we can have labor more fluid for these kind of prices. And I appreciate you looking into that and keeping us up to date on Nancy. Will do. Well, thank you again for joining us. This report is always very revealing and it's always to me very interesting because it, we're talking about a system where you can actually measure uh, purchasing and what flows through it but in a very different and unusual way because it's a healthcare industry system and not what we think of as manufacturing or services. So thanks again for joining us. You're welcome, Tim. We'll talk again soon. We will, and we always thank Nancy LeMaster for joining us from the Institute for Supply Management. You can find them at ismworld.org. And while you're surfing around the web, check out jacketmediaco.com where you can find links to this show and all of our other podcasts. And as always, thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.